Happy Tuesday. Lots to do again today. And and something unprecedented taking place on Capitol Hill. Delaware U.S. Attorney and Special Counsel David Weiss, who's overseeing the Hunter Biden investigation, is testifying today behind closed doors to the House Judiciary Committee. Why is that noteworthy? Well, it's the first time a special counsel will appear before Congress in the middle of a probe. Usually that takes place afterwards. But there was an agreement that David Weiss would testify to legislators during the probe. Now, a spokesperson for Weiss says that, quote, he's prepared to take this unprecedented step to testify before the conclusion of his investigation to make clear that he's had and continues to have full authority over this investigation and to bring charges in any jurisdiction. Now, Weiss's appearance before lawmakers, the House Judiciary Committee, comes after months of back and forth negotiations between Republicans on the Judiciary Committee and the Justice Department as lawmakers have subpoenas several different investigators and attorneys involved in the Hunter Biden case. In July, Weiss initially agreed to come to Capitol Hill, but only if he was able to testify in public where the hearings could be could be made public. And 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 really to combat different types of allegations that the Republicans had levied his way about potential wrongdoing in the investigation. But the Justice Department remained willing to allow Weiss to testify publicly even after the wild plea deal had unraveled inside the courtroom when Hunter Biden was initially allegedly uh, ready to plead guilty to much lesser charges on, on tax evasion. But once that deal eroded, um, they came back to the bargaining table and agreed that a closed-door meeting with both Democratic and Republican members would be would be appropriate. So that's where we stand on that particular case. I think it's very interesting that David Weiss is willing to talk to lawmakers during an active investigation. And, and, and truthfully... It's probably best that it's happening behind closed doors because it's an active investigation. Meanwhile, the U.S. House is considering two more resolutions to censure Rashida Tlaib over her remarks on the Israel-Hamas war. Now, the text of the first measure is being introduced, I'm told, at around 2.30 this afternoon. And it's being brought by a Republican member out of Georgia, Rich McCormick, who has done some due diligence on this censure resolution. Here's what what Tim McCormick has said about the measure. This is because of her inaccurate statements and inflammatory rhetoric that have literally set at the nation of our strong ally of ours in Israel should not exist. This is not to raise money. This is not a a, a specific political message. This is to do the right thing. We've had input from legal counsel who had input from the House Intelligence Committee to make sure that it's accurate. We've had intel even from Democrats that have a vested interest in doing what's right for America. Now, if you remember, 
It never made it to the floor. The last censure attempt against Rashida Tlaib never made it to the floor because a number of Republicans joined many Democrats in tabling it. But this is this is different. Uh, and, and many of those GOP reps that voted against the censure bill or voted for tabling it have signaled that they will indeed vote for it, including Congressman Tim Wahlberg, who was on Guy Gordon's show, or excuse me, J.R. Morning, and said that he wasn't going to vote to censure Rashida Tlaib because she's a First Amendment right to say what, what she wants to say. Whether it's right, wrong, indifferent, she has that right, and he was going to stand by her right to say those things. But I've been told by sources that even Congressman Tim Wahlberg will vote for the McCormick censure. And and this mainly centers around, according to McCormick's resolution, Tlaib promoting false narratives regarding the terrorist attack on October 7th and the, 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 the phrase from the river to the sea, which, according to many, is a rallying cry for Hamas and Hamas sympathizers in their efforts to eliminate the Jewish state from the Jordan River on the east side of the of the country to the west side of the country, the Mediterranean Sea, from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free is is the phrase, and it's that defense of the phrase that McCormick highlights as a reason to bring this censure to the table. So th- this sounds like this has more legs. It, I believe it will be brought to the House floor around 2.30. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on that for you. Uh, Brian, one of, the, one of the main concerns for a lot of people with electric vehicles is what? It's infrastructure, right? It's range anxiety. It's all those things. Well, Ram has, has unveiled a new product today. And it's what they say is the answer to, to range anxiety. And and to the to an infrastructure issue that I think is pe- keeping people from really diving in headfirst to to electric vehicles. You ready? It's the Ram fifteen hundred Ram Charger electric truck. Here's the the specs on this thing. All right, it's a twenty twenty five model year. It's going to come next year. It's got an incline six hurricane engine replacing the V eight Hemi's. Uh, Ram CEO uh, says that there is zero need for a public charger. You don't need a charger for this vehicle. Uh, Stellantis has promoted this as the Range Electric Paradigm Breaker or Rev XR. It runs fully off electricity. It is an electric vehicle, but it has an onboard gas-powered 130-kilowatt generator a 3.6-liter V6 Pentastar engine that's able to charge the EV battery. So, in total, the vehicle drives up to 690 miles of range, according to Ram, 145 miles on the battery, an additional 545 miles produced from the generator-fueled 27-gallon fuel tank. So it's more of a hybrid than it is an electric vehicle. But it is running on an electric battery, 
that is being charged by an engine. Right. It's not ever running on that uh, gas engine. So is this the answer? Is this the answer? And I think to those that are perpetuating the the EV switch as a means to uh, improve our carbon footprint, no, it's probably not an answer. No. But, but I would be interested to know what type of output from the engine there is because yeah. it's not burning the en- The engine isn't right. burning the fuel to power the vehicle. It's powering the, the battery. But if you bought this truck, you wouldn't need any sort of infrastructure at your house. You wouldn't right. ever need to... To stop for an hour no, to charge your vehicle on a road on a road trip. So there's one of the questions: Is can I charge it while I'm driving, or do I have to stop? You char- it charges as it goes. <clears throat> it charges as it goes. I don't have to stop. Nope. And All you got to do is fill up fill up a, the tank of gas, 27 gallons, and it'll charge your 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 electric vehicle. Yeah, it'll charge the, the battery. So it is. So it is a more of closer to a hybrid than an it is closer vehicle. to a hybrid than a full blown electric yeah. vehicle. But they're saying, but 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 a hybrid oftentimes will have both modes yeah absolutely yeah. right it's, this yeah. it is it only hybrid, powered right. off electric so it's a hybrid in theory it's sort of a, a but in practicality it's an ev it's an ev that charges itself now does that move the needle because if if the 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 charge time for you is stopping to get gas right but then powering the the electric batteries is that is that a is that a way to get you to electric vehicles it's certainly it's a step in the right direction but even traveling, then you still have to stop for gas. So it doesn't stop for gas. But that's a five-minute stop. Exactly. As opposed yeah. to a 25, right. 35, 45 minutes stop. Unless you're stopping at a Bucky's, then it's That's a, a different know. story. <laughs> uh, 800-859-0957. All right, we got to take a break. Donald Trump testifying yesterday. Uh, we'll talk to Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and now a law professor at the University of Michigan. Pick her brain, see what she had to say about this uh, pretty interesting court case. We'll talk about it next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. So obviously uh, a few different fireworks in the courtroom yesterday as Donald Trump testified in this case in New York City involving an overvaluation of a number of Trump properties as it pertains to Deutsche Bank and a whole host of issues. And to help us break it all down is Barb McQuaid, the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and now professor at University of Michigan's law school. Uh, Barb, it's good to have you. Thanks very much, Chris. Great to be with you. You know, we, we saw some some different things yesterday and prosecutors were asking Donald Trump about his level of involvement in the organization over the evaluation and over-evaluation of assets like Trump Tower's triplex. Did the former president, in your mind, provide an answer to that? Not really. You know, most of what he did, I thought, was sort of double down on the idea that these uh, properties were properly valued or, if anything, were undervalued because they failed to take account of the extra value of the Trump brand. You know, a couple of times he did concede that he participated in the valuation and that he knew that banks relied on those valuations in uh, assessing their own decisions. But um, largely, I I don't think he moved the needle either way, uh, which is probably harmful to his case since the documents indicate uh, such great levels of overinflation. Well, and and that's where the judge in this case had already made a ruling that there was already overvaluation um, based on the paper trail alone. But but Donald Trump did bring up his financial statements and how they would always hold up in court because of the disclaimers that were added to those statements. He he never said he never really got involved in that aspect because of those clauses. Does that play here? 
You know, it, it may. I think the judge is going to have to assess the value of those things. But, you know, basically what he's saying is, although we, we post all these things up there, we give a disclaimer that says, you know, we, we don't really know whether these are accurate. Um, and then also pointing to the banks and saying, you failed to do your due diligence, then the problem's on you, not on me. That, as a matter of law, doesn't really fly because the representations we make are supposed to be accurate. You know, imagine if you uh, misstated your own income and said, uh, and sent it into the IRS and said, well, it's up to them to do their due diligence. Like they could look into my income and figure out if I'd overpaid or underpaid. It's, it's on them. Um, and everybody's happy, so no harm, no foul. And, and that's not really how it works. I mean, there's a reason that you have to submit what is believed to be an accurate assessment of the value of these assets because lenders and insurers are just making a decision about whether they want to take a risk on a loan. And they're only going to do that if they think it's backed by adequate assets so that they don't lose money if the loan goes bad. Well, and that's one of the arguments that the Trump camp has made is that places like Deutsche Bank, uh, they also send out their own evaluators and assessors to find out what the, the, the real uh, evaluation is of these aspects. Do, do you do you believe that because the banking system, the financial system uh, didn't have a problem with this, that it's it's unreasonable for the court to? No, because that's not what the law requires. The law requires um, honest appraisals, not just ones that you can get away with. Uh, it, it's sort of a, a victim-blaming uh, argument. I think this argument flies from time to time when you have a fact finder that's a jury. Uh, it might sound pretty good, like, yeah, hey, yeah, those banks are sophisticated. <laughs> uh, it, it, but with a judge as a fact finder, he has already admonished the parties that this is not consistent with the law. So I don't think it's going to fly. Donald Trump yesterday promised he was going to bring in bankers next week to testify and say that this didn't matter. That may help him as a factual matter. But again, because of the judge's view of the law, uh, that that likely is not going to provide any defense. The prosecutors were also uh, honing in on the reporting structure uh, of the organization after Donald Trump became president. Did did he address that? And, and did he address it adequately? Um, he, he did address it. He talked about how he turned it over to his children while he was president to avoid conflicts of interest. And then he took it back when he um, left politics. Um, I don't know whether he, he addressed it adequately. I think that one of the strategies of the Trump children and Donald Trump himself really is to just sort of double down on this idea that um, these assets are, are worth every bit as much as we say they are. And we weren't really involved in any of this. It was all the accountants. And so if there's a problem, it's their fault and not ours. Mm. You mentioned Judge Engeron in this case. He, he already made the decision that there was there was a certain level of, of fraud committed here. Um, but there is likely to be an appeal in this case from the Trump camp. Did, did he set that up based on his testimony yesterday? Well, I think there's, you know, there's often an appeal whenever there's an adverse decision against a party. And so I fully expect that there will be an appeal. I think one of the things you're seeing is the Trump team trying to bait the judge a little bit. You know, they've had this ongoing war with his clerk, trying to suggest that it is somehow improper for the clerk to be sharing notes with the judge, which is, you know, what a clerk does in the courtroom. Uh, early on, they found this photo of her posing with the senator of her state, Chuck Schumer, who's a Democrat, and started calling her Schumer's girlfriend, and uh, I think trying to suggest that the judge is biased in some way. Um, is it, that's just a non-issue. It's a non-starter. But it, it does get under the judge's skin from time to time when they raise these things. And so perhaps they're trying to bait him into 
you know, saying something that might be some sort of error. I, I don't know that we've seen anything that rises to that level. Um, but I imagine they will appeal um, the order. I think they know that this case in this court is probably done just based on what the judge has already ordered. And this trial really is just a question of about how much of uh, the requested $250 million should be disgorged for the taxpayers of the state of New York. Um, and so I think they're playing this one more to the court of public opinion than to a court of law, knowing that this one's likely a loss and that any victory is going to have to be obtained in the court of appeals. You know, you, you, you've you seen a lot of cases, a lot of court cases uh, in, in your time in, in the in the law field. Do you have you ever seen a, a scenario, a situation that we saw yesterday with the judge almost admonishing Donald Trump uh, a, a few different times, saying that this wasn't a rally uh, and, and asking his legal counsel uh, to rein him in and get control of him. Have you ever seen that before? No, I've seen nothing like that. You know, the witness gets on the stand and usually is very polite and answers questions and says as little as possible. Instead, you know, Donald Trump wanted to give speeches. He's pulling notes out of his pocket. Uh, at one point, the judge had to say, this is not a campaign rally, sir. And, uh, you know, he was criticizing the court, criticizing the judge, criticizing the prosecutor as unfair and political hacks. And when the judge asked uh, Trump's lawyer to see if she could get him under control, she said, no, I'm not going to infringe on his First Amendment rights, which is a really absurd response, you know, to suggest in the courtroom the First Amendment permits you to say anything you want. Um, Certainly judges are within their rights to direct witnesses to answer the questions asked. So, uh, nope, I've never seen anything like it. It reminded me a lot of that first Trump-Biden debate Mm -hmm. where Donald Trump was just sort of saying anything that came into his mind and really wreaking havoc on the system. So uh, he is a disruptor, and he most certainly disrupted yesterday. And while most of the, the charges that, that he faces uh, don't relate to this case at all, was there any overlap in these charges in this case, particularly perhaps to the Stormy Daniels case? Did he say anything here that that the prosecutors uh, in other scenarios would use? think so. I suppose it's possible he made some admission about the way he does business that could be used against him in that case. But, you know, each of those cases has very different allegations. That one was about, in in particular, um, uh, disguising payments to Stormy Daniels as legal fees for Michael Cohen, who then, you know, paid her. So I don't think that will pertain to, uh, you know, any of the other cases here. But I do think it is a good wake-up call for any of the prosecutors handling any of those cases, that if he is to take the stand, uh, he will be a very unpredictable force. And aside from the $250 million fine, really at the heart here, and I have just about 30 seconds left, is whether or not the Trump organization will be able to continue to do business in New York. How do you think this plays out? Yeah, that's uh, that, that's probably the more serious penalty here, the revocation of the certificates of doing business. If he cannot do business, in New York, then he would have to liquidate his assets there. I mean, he would sell them, he would get the proceeds from mm-hmm. them, but the, you know, the name Trump Tower would no longer adorn the building where he lives. Uh, 40 Wall Street would be under new ownership. Yeah. Uh, his golf courses and other things. So, um, you know, I think that would be a big blow to his empire um, and, uh, you know, would, would force him to focus his business activities out of state. Barb McQuaid, thank you so much. Always appreciate your insight. Okay, thank you, Chris. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. 800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. Joe Biden losing support inside his own party and amongst 
a group of people that may very well have helped him get elected in 2020. We'll get to that momentarily. But first, I want to get to the phones. Let's go to John in Detroit. What's up, John? John? All right, let's go to Mike in Shelby Township. Hello, Michael. Hello, Chris. I got a question which I can't understand. Okay. If Trump overvalued his property, property taxes that you pay the government and the states are based on value. Mm -hmm. So he actually paid more for his properties than he should have. So where is the harm that that he did to the state or to the government? Well, it's not about the property taxes. It's more about if you overinflate what you're worth or you overinflate the valuation of, uh, let's say, Trump Tower or how many square feet it is, that it, that that in uh, it it impacts the the evaluation. It impacts the assessment and, impa- and then it impacts the banking systems that are incurring this this potential debt or loans. And so the, the wrongdoing is the fraud of of pumping yourself up more than what you're actually worth. But isn't it true that your value is based on your assumption and what the market will bear? So if the market bears the value, then that's the value. You know if you try to sell a car for too much money, nobody will buy it. Well, that's true. There's no doubt that the market dictates. There's no doubt about it. But, like, when I refied my house, Mike... I wasn't the one making the call on how much my house was worth. That has to be from somebody else. That has to be from from my loan company. Now, if they want to send an assessor out to 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 look at my property top to bottom and tell me what it's worth, or like many were doing during when the, the time when most people were refining, is they would just tell you over the phone based on on what you sold your house for X number of, or what you bought your house for X number of years ago and what the market dictates now. But that's that's their call. If I'm the one who's over evaluating it, that's where the problem is. Mike, I appreciate the call. Good stuff. 800-859-0957. This this trend and and we talked about the New York Times Siena poll yesterday a bit. And we're going to talk about it more coming up in the three o'clock hour about how if the election were held today, Donald Trump would beat Joe Biden in a straight up head to head match. But. Why is that? And I think there's a lot of factors in the New York Times poll, but there's another poll that was conducted by Gallup. Joe Biden's approval rating among Democrats has plummeted to 75 percent. That's down 11 percent just last month. And another new poll shows that Arab Americans are dropping their support for Joe Biden in big time numbers. And that certainly could have some pretty serious ramifications. Sam Robinson's a reporter for Axios Detroit and he joins us. Sam, good to have you. What what did you make of of these polling numbers of of Arab Americans, specifically here in the Michigan area? Obviously, we, we've got a, a, a healthy uh, Arab population in the Dearborn area, uh, but in southwest Detroit or, or excuse me, southwest Michigan, southeast Michigan. What, what did you make of these numbers? Sure. Well, you know, for folks that have been on the ground the last uh, three weeks, really the last entire month, we're we're at the one month anniversary of Hamas's attack uh, on Israel on October 7th, which has led to uh, a month long bombardment of of the Gaza Strip. Uh, You know, folks are really upset. Uh, that's that's the first thing you, you, you hear um, when talking to these communities. But when you talk to your leaders, they say they have never seen 
uh, anger and frustration like this. It's palatable to what they felt uh, over Donald Trump's Muslim ban. It's palatable to what they felt during the Iraq war, uh, to Lebanon war in, in 2006 and 82 and so on. So it's been very interesting to, to hear the different perspectives on the ground from both conservative and, and liberal Arab Americans. So the poll was done by the Arab American Institute, about 500 people nationwide. Uh, in 2020, there were about 59 percent of Arab Americans that said they voted for Joe Biden then. Now, if the election were held today, about 17 percent of Arab American voters say they would vote for Joe Biden uh, in 2024. That is a huge plummet in support from from Arab Americans what is the what has been the administration's response, do you believe, uh, to to try to quell some of the fears of, of Arab Americans? Sure. So we've certainly seen a tone shift. Right. I think the first two or three weeks, it was complete, unequivocal support uh, for all of Israel's military operations in Gaza. And since we've seen. Uh, really, this underswell of uh, um, um, you know folks from the State Department, uh, folks out of congressional offices, right, younger staffers, who are saying, you know, we do not agree with uh, this sort of uh, you know all-out blitz on this region. Um, they point to the number of uh, Palestinian civilians killed there and say, hey, we need a ceasefire. So far, Israel and the United States have have uh, yet to um, uh, you know, get support on, on, on such a thing. And a lot of folks think that, hey, that, that's not the way that uh, you win wars. Uh, but it's been a, an interesting uh, last two weeks as the tone has sort of coalesced around the concerns over. So the is the message from people that you talk to that, you know, talk is cheap. You got to walk the walk and, and the administration hasn't done enough to to push the ceasefire or or push a, a stop in the bombardment in Gaza. Sure. Well, uh, Abraham Ayish, who represents uh, Hamtramck parts of Detroit, he's the majority House floor leader in Michigan House of Representatives. He told me last week that he's reached out to uh, members of the administration, to the White House, um, and and trying to set up meetings. The White House did hold a meeting with Arab American uh, leaders from across the country uh, two weeks ago. Um, but folks that I talked to, uh, like uh, Jim Zogby um, at the Arab American Institute, say that uh, you know, folks are, are traumatized by this. It's going to take a lot more than, than a White House meeting to uh, sort of quell the, the frustrations. Mm. Do you then do you believe, um, based on what you're hearing from people, that that the numbers back up the frustrations that that this is sort of unforgivable and kind of no matter what happens going forward, the the president's lost the the trust of of the Arab American community. Sure. Well. You know, that's a good question because obviously Democrat retort will be, well, you, you guys want Trump back? And I don't think most of them do. Now, some of them do. Uh, you know, there, there is a large conservative Arab American sure. population that exists, Muslim uh, conservatism that we've seen in Dearborn and Hamtramck uh, just the last few months. Um, but uh, in numbers, that's going to be, you know, Months from now in November, when the general election you know, on, the, on the ballot says Biden and 
and Trump. It's going to take a lot for some of these folks to leave it blank. That's what they're telling me they're going to do. Uh, you know, we'll have to wait and see whether uh, their anger, uh, you know, continues. Biden came into office pro-Israel as it gets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and folks knew that going into it. They still voted for him. Uh, some folks are telling me that, that they regret doing that. Mm. Very interesting. Uh, Sam Robinson with Axios Detroit. Thank you so much. Appreciate the, the, the information. Yeah, thank you, guys. Yeah, you got it. 800-859-0957. I want to try to squeeze in a call here before we, we got to go to a break. Let's go to Pat in Richmond. What's up, Pat? Hey, Chris. Hey. Um, in regards to um, Trump overvaluing, supposedly overvaluing his properties, um, isn't it the bank's responsibility or what, who's ever giving the loan? The lender, to yeah. Diligence? Yes. Yeah. So, um, well, and and that's what the, that's what you know. For example, Don Jr. and Eric have contested when they testify in this case that that the banks knew very well what they were doing and they were comfortable with it. So, if they were comfortable with it, why is the state of New York worried about it? Exactly. So, we're supposed to protect sloppy banks. I mean, some who was hurt? It was tell me the bank that was so sloppy that they just went by a customer's word on what something's valued. That never takes place in the, in the financial world. Yeah, so I mean, to is, be fair, to... though, I mean, this isn't just uh, somebody. I mean, this is one of the largest real estate companies in the, in New York City. So you there would probably be a level of trust. But if you're overvaluating your assets, that means your worth is more. That means that you're going – it's going to be easier for you to secure loans when maybe in reality – it's not as secure a loan as the banks think it is. But I think that's where the Trump camp is saying, well, we've we've worked with these banks for a long time and they've trusted us. We have a good relationship. Nobody's ever been hurt in or at least detrimentally hurt in these in these deals. So why now does the state of New York care? I, I think that's a valid argument. But the judge in this case has already ruled and that'll certainly make way for an appeal. Pat, appreciate the call. Got to run. Uh, get back to more of your calls, your texts as we continue on. Uh, small business interview coming up next with Freddie the Pizza Man. That's next on JR Afternoon. All right, welcome back. Good to have you. You, you know, we, we try to highlight the power of small business on this show because, look, quite frankly, for all the big businesses that are out there, the Fortune 500 companies, it is the, the smaller businesses that make our economy go. And we've got some spectacular small businesses in this community, including one. And it just so happens that the products that they produce are some of my favorite in the world, and that's pizza. And, yes, I'm talking about Freddie the Pizza Man, Freddie Bello, uh, who joins us. Freddie, uh, buddy, it's good to have you. How are you? I'm good. I, you, you know, this is um, – it's kind of been a renaissance for you. Uh, you've always done uh, outstanding work out at your shop, but – you know, over the last couple of years during the pandemic, you had uh, Barstool came in. Uh, Dave Portnoy gave you a huge grade when when he was t- uh, testing out your pie. Um, how, how did that change the business? Um, it changed the business uh, when it comes to, you know, I always had a good business, but the way it changed was people travel from all over the world. Even two and a half years later, I had a guy the other day walking with his luggage, which happens all the time. And I'm and I'm the first thing that first thing I ask is, "Where are you from?" Oh, Sweden. You were my first stop. <laughs> so um, it happens every day. It happens multiple times a day. That's the that's the difference in the video. Uh, for me having a good business now to kind of, it's, it's basically worldwide, which is, uh, 
I try to keep that small time feel and that small time presence, and I and I, I'm going to remain that way. But when people walk in worldwide, it's 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 crazy, man. It really is. Well, and it's crazy for you because you're the only one making the food. And and I know you got uh, some other employees that are there helping you. They run the cash register, and and you got some bussers and those things. But in terms of of the food that people are eating, it's all you. Yeah, no, I yeah, I mean, I got other pizza makers, but the thing is, my hands are on every pizza, and and uh, the, the, so yeah, my hands are on every pizza, and and the reason why is not because I don't trust anybody. It's because the story's been written. It's been written that when they come here, they want they want to they want to see me, and they want to see me make the pizza, and there's no other way around it. As long as I stay here, it's the way it's going to happen. It's well, the way it's going to be. Out in Melvindale, I mean, your business obviously is so predicated on Ford workers in the area, and and and, and you've collaborated a lot with the Detroit Lions. I mean, you get a lot of folks uh, in through your doors. How important is the community aspect to you? Because obviously, you got a family. You got you want to go home and spend time with them. So your hours are a little different than most most businesses, most restaurants that are that are uh, putting out food. Um, but but your your customer base is so loyal to you that that it affords you the ability for some flexibility in other parts of your life. Yeah, I, and I and I'm appreciative of that. And I, it's just it's just I am who I am. I wear my heart on my sleeve, and and I'm like I'm like this is the way it's going to be. This if, if I if in the business if you're going to survive, you have to survive, and you have to do what's best for you and the life that's around you. And if you do that then everything else will fall into motion. If you start doing other things where um, to, to please everybody, you're never going to please yourself. And uh, I want to please everybody. Put, put, people pull at me every minute of the day, whether it's emails or phone calls or this or, or that. But I try, to, I try to be good to everybody. But I, I do have a, a life, and it's not really a life. It's only a, my, my only life I have, Chris, is my is my drive home and my drive to work. It's my only peaceful time I have, and half the time that's just returning phone calls. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I just love everybody, and I just want to do good by everybody, and I respect everybody, and that's that's just who I am. Well, and that comes through with with the, the other parts of your life, uh, outside of just your peaceful rides home and to work. Uh, you started the Freddie the Pizza Man Foundation, which which tackles autism, which feels like more and more families are are dealing with across the country. And you've partnered with uh, sports teams, you've partnered with athletic departments at colleges, uh, and certainly schools all around the region to put sensory rooms in in these facilities for for kids with autism. Um, how did this start? Why did you Why did you go down this avenue and create the Freddie the Pizza Man Foundation? Well, when I learned when I learned about sensory rooms, how important they are with children with autism. Obviously, I have a son with autism, so early on in his schooling, I learned about sensory rooms, and I know how much it helped my son at the time. I just wanted to be able to give back. Um, I give back in pizza every day of my life. I wanted to give back a different way, and that's and it's something that completely touches my heart. So everything that comes comes from my heart and my soul. So I learned about sensory rooms. I started uh, raising money. Everything I raise is is uh, 100% donations through Freddy the Pizza Man Foundations, which which is a 501c3, and 100% of the proceeds go to equipping sensory rooms in the state of Michigan. And uh, yeah, we're up, we're up at 73 schools in the state of Michigan, two major arenas: the Breslin Center, Michigan mm-hmm. State, and uh, Ford Field, the Detroit Lions. Which if you don't mind me saying, I know I'm being long-winded, but someone someone shared a post with me yesterday that they were there. It wasn't a Lions game. Their daughter was having uh, practice marching bands, 
and their their son was having a meltdown, and they escorted him up to the sensory room, and the boy had the room to himself for about 15, 20 minutes. Oh my minutes, God. which which made a world of difference, and uh, that's why we did this. That's just the bottom line. This is why we did this. What do you What do you feel when somebody tells you that? It feels incredible. It feels incredible because when you, a lot of times in, in life, when you put a lot of hard work into it, you know, so many things come out of the woodworks and makes things harder. And all that hard work was worth it. It really was worth it because I, this is why we do it. It's for families that are affected with children with autism and special needs. This is exactly why we do it. There's no other reason why we do the sensory rooms. It's because we live it every day. So if somebody walks into the restaurant out in Melvindale, uh, and they say, look, I'm not in the mood for anything in particular. I just want something good. What is your recommendation to those people? Because well, you got the goulash, have... you got the pie, you got everything. What, what's the recommendation from, from the man himself? Well, I get, I get that question every day. I'm, I'm very simple. And I, I, don't, I don't eat as much pizza as people think, to be honest with you. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I like it really thin, and I like it just with cheese and olive oil and just very simple, uh, maybe a few vegetables here and there. And um, that's 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 the best. That's just the best way to eat it, to be honest with you. The pizza needs to be simple, not not globbed all over like a kid drawing a picture with uh, 17 different colors on it. Right. 17 different crayons. You just want a couple crayons makes a better picture. Uh, what uh, it, when it comes to the 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 process of how you got into this business, how, how did you how did you get into how did you get into making pizzas and, and different types of food for people? Where did that come from? Well, well, back in the 70s, my dad bought his first pizzeria in 1976, to be exact. And as a six-year-old boy, I was always fascinated by my dad. Number one, he was my hero. And um, I just watched him. I watched everything my dad did, not just making pizza, not just running a business. I watched my dad do everything. I watched him shave. I watched him get dressed, how he... He cleaned his shoes, how, how, how he did everything. And uh, that, that, that's what made him a successful businessman. That's what made him a successful person. And um, I lived that every minute of the day. And uh, that's how I got started into it. In 1981, mm. my first memories of making pizza, I've never stopped making pizza since. 42 years. All right. So I imagine pizza's not on the, on the menu tonight for dinner. What, what, what's what's uh, a normal uh, dinner night in the Bellow household? Uh, well, with minus the three kids, if you're just calling me, <laughs> I like, I, I, uh, I like, um, Mediterranean food and I okay. love spaghetti. Yeah. I love spaghetti. So you give me some, uh, uh, Mediterranean food, Arabic food, as many know as, as it is. And uh, a plate of spaghetti. I'm a, Done. I'm a happy man. Done. I'm a happy man. Uh, well, uh, Freddie, you make a lot of other people happy too, with your food and, and your causes. Uh, you're one of the best people that we got in this area. So best of of luck uh, to you and continued success. We'll talk again very. Time. I got to I got to stop in one of these days, so you'll see me here yeah. uh, in the next couple of days, hopefully. Anytime, and I'm and I'm very happy for your success as well too. So you're all over the place. I see you even on billboards. I love it. Yeah, thanks, bud. We'll talk again soon. See you, buddy. That's Freddie Bello of Freddie the Pizza Man here on JR Afternoon. Don't go anywhere. All right, welcome back. Three o'clock hour. Good to have you. We're gonna check in on this conflict un- unfolding in Israel and Gaza. Uh, IDF forces are pushing their way into Gaza City, and and this is a real escalation of, of this war that Hamas started all the way back on October 7th, one month ago. And, and look, the United States certainly has changed their tone on it. The president has certainly changed his tone on it. 
in the days after the initial attack. The president was was very forceful in his messaging about the United States' position on Israel's retribution and their and and the what they they were going to do following the initial horrific attack. And that was you were they were going to stand by Israel, one of America's largest allies, and that they were going to support the swift and decisive decisions that the Israeli government saw fit. But since then, we have seen a, a, a much more mild take, and that is, well, we need to pause for humanitarian aid, or we need to, not a ceasefire, but let's pause, let's take a pause so everybody can catch their breath, and 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 then we'll pick this back up again sometime, but, but we need to pause for humanitarian aid. And while all of that is legitimate, and there is humanitarian aid coming up through through Egypt, the idea that the only group that that would benefit, a pause, would be Hamas. And seen pretty blatantly over the last month, the brazenness of Hamas as a terror organization to attack the Israeli people, the Israeli state, and and take one step closer to eliminating the, the Jewish state in the Middle East. And there have been lawmakers in the United States that have taken pretty hardline stances. And many Democrats continue to stand by the idea that Joe Biden had set out initially, and that was stand by Israel. They are going to do what they need to do as a country to to not only protect themselves, but but respond in a pretty forceful manner. One of those Democrats is not Rashida Tlaib. Rashida Tlaib has come under tremendous fire in recent weeks for her rhetoric surrounding this war. Now, Rashida Tlaib is of Palestinian descent. She's the only Palestinian member of the United States Congress. So naturally, I think it would be fair to assume that her viewpoint and take is going to be very different, and obviously it is. Marjorie Taylor Greene had put forth a resolution to censure Rashida Tlaib just, what, last week? And it was it was shot down. There were a number of Republicans that voted to to table it, which means it wasn't going to get any further because they didn't believe that what Rashida Tlaib had said constituted a censure, constituted a violation of of her free speech rights. So those, including Tim Wahlberg here in Michigan, voted against it and tabled it and said, I don't agree what with what Rashida Tlaib says. But I I do agree that we need to stand up for the right to say those things, whether they're right, wrong, or indifferent. So Tim Wahlberg, I thought, was being very principled here. Well, things changed. And over the course of the last few days, late end of last week, early this week, you know, Rashida Tlaib posted on X a video where the, the phrase from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, was used and defended it and saying, well, it's a harmonious you know, rallying cry for peace and harmony. When in reality, if you think about it, Hamas uses it in a very different way, which is from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free because it's the Jordan River on the east side of the country to the sea, the Mediterranean Sea on the west side, and you're eliminating the 
the Jewish state. So it's a very different connotation used over there. And so that's what this censure focuses on. The censure from Representative Rich McCormick. It's much more narrow. He said that there was a tremendous amount of work done to make sure they were doing the right thing, the right input from different legal councils, including the House Intelligence Committee, to make sure that it's accurate. Um, and and those people that once voted against the censure of Rashida Tlaib, including Representative Tim Wahlberg, I'm told, will will vote in favor of this. So this did pass the floor. Uh, it will advance, and they will take a vote on it to censure Rashida Tlaib. And, and a censure is... There really isn't any uh, real ramifications here. It's a it's a disapproval of something that was said. And in this case, that's what's being cited uh, under Rashida Tlaib's case. Um, special counsel David Weiss, the U.S. attorney out of Delaware, who's handling the Hunter Biden probe, spoke today to the House Judiciary Committee saying that he was not blocked or prevented from pursuing charges against Hunter Biden in now a years-long probe. And I'm not sure that's changing the mind of some on Capitol Hill or or maybe even in the public. But it was a, a pretty unprecedented meeting that David Weiss attended today behind closed doors with the House Judiciary because the fact that a special counsel met with lawmakers during an active investigation is something else. We haven't seen that before. White said, I've done so out of respect for the committee's oversight responsibilities to respond to questions raised about the scope of my authority. He also stressed that he is, quote, in the midst of conducting an ongoing investigation and prosecution and said he was limited to what he can say. But he did say that at the conclusion of his work, he will prepare a report and will will share it with with lawmakers, which is pretty standard. Um, How about this? We've been talking about social media and the impacts of social media and and the harmful impacts of social media on kids, teenagers, particularly teen girls. On the same day in 2021 that a former Facebook employee turned whistleblower, remember Francis Haugen testified about the harms of Facebook and Instagram to children? That same day that Francis Haugen testified, a former engineering director at Social uh, at Facebook sent a text or excuse me, an email to Mark Zuckerberg about that same topic. Arturo Bahar, known for his expertise in curbing online harassment, recounted in that email to Zuckerberg his own daughter's experience with Instagram. He says that there were serious concerns that he shared with Mark Zuckerberg that not only went unheard, but never addressed at all. He told senators today on Capitol Hill that he had a child who received unwanted sexual advances on Instagram and said that she and her friends had been having awful experiences, including un, including repeated unwanted sexual advances and harassments. He said that these incidents were reported to the company and they did nothing. He went on to say, I can safely say that Meta's executives knew the harm that teenagers were experiencing, that there were things that they could do that are very doable and they chose not to do them. 
So I, I would imagine at some point, probably in the not too distant future, Mark Zuckerberg will be once again called to testify. Because this once again highlights and, and spotlights the important oversight that needs to be done on these social media companies, in my mind, to make sure that when kids are using these platforms, there is a certain level of, there's a certain barrier, a certain protection. But I, I, I obviously, in in the case of one of their own whose children experienced harassment, it wasn't enough for Facebook and Meta. All right, we got to take a break. Uh, coming up, we'll check in on this War ongoing in Gaza as IDF forces penetrate Gaza City. That's next on JR Afternoon. And for all the Rashida Tlaibs out there or those that that think along those lines, I present to you what the IDF is posting on Twitter, saying that the IDF is continuing to facilitate the entry of humanitarian aid into Gaza. As of yesterday, 665 trucks have entered Gaza with deliveries of vital humanitarian aid. In addition, more humanitarian initiatives are being planned. Those 665 trucks collectively carry 3,000 tons of food, more than 1,720 tons of medical equipment. Additionally, over 300,000 gallons of water were transported along with 600 tons of shelter equipment. Now, you want to talk about abiding by international war laws? Well, that would certainly qualify. And they went on to say that we are at war with Hamas, not Gazan civilians. And I think that with a neat bow tidies up that particular message or talking point from those that are calling for a ceasefire. Jonathan Tobin is the editor-in-chief at the Jewish News Syndicate, also a senior contributor at the Federalist and a columnist for the New York Post. He joins us. Jonathan, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me on. What is your tenor, what is your viewpoint of where we sit with this war exactly a month in? Well, uh, it's it's been a month, and it's been a month uh, of mourning for Israelis and for the Jewish people as they still are coping with um, the aftermath of the worst mass slaughter of Jews since the Holocaust, the horrible, unspeakable atrocities that were committed by the Hamas terrorist organization, which up until October 7th um, was ruling uh, Gaza as an independent Palestinian state in all but name. And you, know, you just referenced the humanitarian aid that the Israelis let through. Um, you know, the Hamas and uh, its supporters like Rashid Salaib often speak of that Israel besieges or treats uh, Gaza like an open-air prison. Every day, um, uh, convoys of trucks entered Gaza from Israel with food and fuel and medicine and all normal, um, uh, you know, uh, items. Um, that's some siege. That's some blockade. Um, you know, so it, it's it's a myth, uh, like so many myths that um, supporters and fellow travelers of of the terrorists have been spreading. But the point is, you know, Hamas ruled Gaza as an independent Palestinian state in all but name since its uh, bloody coup in 2007. And Israel tried to live with it. Um, every time Hamas fired rockets into Israel, Israel fired back. But they did not want to go into Gaza. They kept saying, you know, let's have a ceasefire and just stay on your side of the fence and we'll stay on ours. But, you know, and there was a ceasefire on October 6th, and Hamas violated it. 
to commit these atrocities because its goal is not to adjust Israel's borders or its policies or a two-state solution. They want to destroy the one Jewish state on the planet. They want to commit the genocide of Israel's Jewish population. And that is something that Israel can't live with. It's not going to countenance. And um, Hamas has proved that it can't be trusted to observe a ceasefire or, you know, to, to, to just live there. And it has to be destroyed. That's the only path forward for, for either people, for Israelis or uh, Palestinian Arabs. And um, it's unfortunate that the Palestinian civilians, many of whom unfortunately support Hamas, have been caught in the crossfire or being used as human shields by um, by Hamas, who has its military headquarters underneath the, the hospital, hospital yeah. in Gaza and um, stores, you know, arms shoots from from wherever uh, from wherever civilians are. You know, the, the rules of law and, and international law are clear on Israel's obligations, but they're clear on Hamas's obligation. And everything Hamas does is a violation of, of international law. And international law does not require Israel to let a terrorist state slaughter its civilians exist on its borders. Mm. In fact, Israel has a positive obligation to stop this. And, um, you, know, it, it, you know, Hamas is, you know, has governed Gaza as a, as a rogue state. You know, it's uh, on the other side of the, you know, Egypt doesn't want any part of it. You know, they they really blockaded Gaza. And, um, you know, it's just we're, we're at the point where this has to change. Well, and, and, and not going to let it go on. And there's a certain level of angst, I think, from the Biden administration where they want to tie aid to Israel with aid to Ukraine. Is that something that you think would be beneficial to to the United States efforts in aiding Israel? No, it's a political ploy by Biden. Listen, Biden is trying to dance, um, you know, he, he, between a number of different competing things. And, you know, he's, he's on the one hand, he's been very supportive of Israel. And to his credit, although his policies helped set in motion with his appeasement of Iran continuing Obama's policies, uh, that helps that helped set up this this tragedy. But since October 7th, he's been very strong in support of Israel. But he's got a lot of pressure from uh, the left wing of his party. Well, and which, yeah, his, um, his support has changed. It's morphed into a much softer stance. Yeah, absolutely. So he's been trying, you know, he knows that he's under pressure there. Now, as far as Ukraine, you know, there's a basic problem here. Um, there, uh, there is a bipartisan consensus within the United States and the United States Congress, the, the people and the Congress, to support Israel. You know, yes, there are maybe a couple of votes in Congress among the Republicans who won't vote for it. And there are obviously the hard left within the Democratic Party, which is far more numerous. But the majority of Democrats want to support aid to Israel. Mm-hmm. Almost every Republican wants to support Israel. So why did why does it, why is Biden trying to tie Ukraine aid to this? Well, because he knows that while there's a consensus in support of aid to Israel, there is not a political consensus within Congress in support of continuing Aid. And so he crafted this this package where it's 61 billion for Ukraine, 14 billion for for Israel. I, I might add that almost all of which will be spent in the United States on on U.S. arms. Mm-hmm. So it's as much an you know it's, a, it's an aid package for uh, General Dynamics and Raytheon and all the other arms manufacturers and the people who work there. Um, but the point is, the you know the, the only way he know he thinks he can pass. Another $61 billion for Ukraine, we spent $150 billion aiding them in their war against Russia. And I'm not saying 
that Ukraine is in the wrong in trying to fight for its independence. Um, Russia is certainly in the wrong in that war, but that's a that's a stalemate. It, it's not going anywhere. Even the Ukrainians admit they can't win the war, so it's, it needs to to be ended. But the point is, Republicans in the House are not going to support $61 billion for Ukraine. So tying it to, to Israel is is political blackmail. And, and you know, of course, it's you know, Biden is gaslighting the Republicans, saying it's blaming it on them. So what has to happen is that both sides have to stop playing games, in, you know, in terms of the two parties, and pass a clean aid bill for Israel. There's an overwhelming majority in Congress for it. There's an overwhelming majority among the American people for that. The Ukraine aid package will have to be debated. Sure. You know, Biden's going to have to negotiate with the Republicans on that. Maybe he can get them to agree to, to some more aid to Ukraine, but he's not going to get it by tying it to a package with Israel because – the dynamic, you know, in all these funding. Well, it's so much uh, more you know, contentious in, in in Ukraine. I mean, the the, the yeah. amount of of aid that has already been given to Volodymyr Zelensky and Ukrainian soldiers is, is pretty sizable. So the fact that the, <laughs> to, they're tying it to 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 this aid to Israel, I think, is questionable. Jonathan Tobin, I hope you can join us again very soon. I appreciate our conversation. Let's Happy talk again to. soon. Thanks so much. Yeah, you got it. That's Jonathan Tobin, the editor in chief at the Jew- Jewish News Syndicate, also a contributor at the Federalist and a columnist at the New York Post. Coming up next, the White House says take it with a grain of salt, but there's something to this new New York Times-Siena poll that says the president is down big time, and if the election were today, would lose outright and pretty large to Donald Trump. That's next. This is JR Afternoon with Chris Renwick on 760 WJR where Michigan comes to talk. You know, we talked very briefly yesterday about this new New York Times Siena poll that shows that Donald Trump in five of the six traditional swing states that we've seen over the last few election cycles are now leaning towards Donald Trump. That would give Donald Trump, if you factor in kind of the states that we expect to fall uh, red, that would give Donald Trump a win if the election were held today. What goes into these polls? Dr. Don Levy is the director of Siena College Research Institute, and he joins us. Doctor, good to have you. Absolutely. Great to be with you. Talk to me a little bit about the anatomy of, of this particular poll. What, what kind of questions did you ask people? Uh, this is a far-reaching poll. We ask uh, not only the horse race questions, who would you vote for? Um, we ask a number of questions about uh, the generic Democrat versus Trump or the generic Republican versus Biden. We ask about how voters feel about these two leading candidates. Are they too old? Do they have the, the mental acuity to be president? We ask about the issues of the day, the economy, abortion, a uh, wall along the southern border. So we get a really um, good overall picture of uh, how voters are going to make their decisions, not just who right away they say they're going to vote for, but what goes into their decision-making. Whose policies do you think help you more? How important is the economy versus, say, societal issues like abortion, guns, or threats to democracy? So it's the poll itself um, takes respondents about 15 minutes to take the survey. We spoke to um, about 3,700 people across the six battleground states, a little over 600 in each state. Uh, so, um, and, you know, if you want to get into some of the methodologies, we have rigorous quotas to make sure that we have the appropriate number of 
Republicans, Democrats, independents, people from uh, all across the state of every age, of every educational background. Um, it's a rigorous process. And, and part of that process, I would imagine, involves phrasing questions the right way, not leading potential voters in a certain direction. How important is that in the polling process? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, we are uh, dedicated to having our questions be fair, uh, no bias, so that uh, someone you know takes the survey and they, they, they don't feel as though they're being led in any one way or another. So there's a great deal of, of care that goes into the building these polls. We, we test them again and again. Some of these questions are questions, of course, that we've been asking uh, um, you know many times, and many of the questions that we ask about the personal traits uh, of the leading candidates are ones where we, we ask the exact same question. It's just, you know, one question says Donald Trump, another question says Joe Biden. Um, but, but yes, we're very, very careful um, to have our questions be fair. And we publish our questions, the exact wording of every question and the order in which we ask them. So if anybody wants to say, hey, you know, you know why didn't you ask, uh, you know, the question about, um, you know, abortion before the question about uh, the economy or, you know, so we're open to that. We're very, very transparent. Well, I think transparency is is key and, and not just in polling. I mean, across the board, I think we, we need to be as a society more transparent. I, I want to go back to something you said when you were breaking down kind of the, the methodology of these polls. You, you, yes, you talk about Donald Trump or you talk about Joe Biden, but you also talk about the parties in particular, Democrat versus Republican. What did you find there? Um, well, we found, you know, if, if we're talking about the, the horse race question, um, that there is more support for a, a nameless Democrat versus Donald Trump than there is for um, Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side of that, there is far more support for a generic Republican um, versus uh, Biden than there is for Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. So. Wow. Uh, you know, both of these two leading candidates uh, at present have negative favorability assessments. In other words, a majority of uh, Americans in these battleground states, specifically a majority of Michiganders, uh, have a negative view of both Donald Trump and Joe Biden than they do a positive view. So when we say if a if some faceless, nameless Democrat was running against Trump, who would you vote for? That uh, Democrat wins by seven points. Flip side. If a nameless, faceless Republican was running against Joe Biden, that Republican in Michigan wins by 14 points. So there is a, um, a, a real pronounced dissatisfaction at present across the entire electorate in the six battleground states and in Michigan towards these two leading candidates. But straight up in these states, Donald Trump would win between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Right now, we've yeah. got uh, Donald Trump up in five of the six states uh, in Michigan by five points. Uh, and as you know, these are six states that Joe Biden won mm -hmm. in uh, in 2020. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, if you want to do the political calculus, um, you know, if if indeed Donald Trump were to uh, finish the way our poll right now reads the electorate, he would be uh, more than likely the next president of the United States. I find it incredibly fascinating that the, 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 the nameless Republican or the nameless Democrat the, the, the type of success that they would have in a time when we wouldn't know who those nameless uh, candidates would be. We, we don't know who that person would be, but just the fact that there there does seem to be from the indications from your polling that that 
there would be a, almost a welcoming of somebody else coming in and joining this race. Right. Well, there's a couple of indicators of that. We asked one question, for example, uh, we put uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. in the in the poll, and we said uh, if it was a three-way race, who would you vote for? Um, and uh, in, in Michigan, uh, Trump would, would win in that three-way race, but it's very, very tight. Trump 34, Biden 31, uh, RFK 26. Wow. So 26% of Michiganders say, if I was given that choice, I would pull the lever for Robert Kennedy, someone who, uh, you know, is certainly not as well known um, as not as uh, mainstream as, as for sure, Trump, and not as mainstream. So again, um, that's a a wellspring of dissatisfaction, you know. And as you point out, uh, the generic Democrat outpolls um, Biden by five points. The generic Republican outpolls um, Trump by two to three points. So. There is, you know, both these two leading candidates have a lot of warts. We asked, for example, do you think that Joe Biden uh, is too old to be an effective president? Do you think that Donald Trump is too old to be an effective president? Seventy-one percent of Michiganders say, and this is fifty um, percent of the people who say they're going to vote for Biden, they say he's too old to be an effective president. Wow. Now, Trump does better on that question, but still, thirty-nine percent of Michiganders say that Donald Trump is simply too old to be an effective president. What did you find on on some of the, the bell cow issues you talked about, abortion, economy, immigration? Well, one question that we ask is, uh, when you're going to make up your decision as to who to vote for, do you think that what's more important to you, economic issues or societal issues like abortion, guns, and democracy? Uh, in Michigan, by a two-to-one margin, voters told us that it's the economy. That's what's most important to me. Uh, and we asked them, well, what do you think of the economy right now? Not good news. Eighty-two percent of Michiganders said, I don't think the condition of the economy is any better than fair, if not poor. In fact, over half say poor. Um, and when we said, who do you trust more to handle the economy, um, by 23 points, Michiganders say they trust Donald Trump more than they trust Joe Biden. However, when you introduce abortion to it, by a two-to-one margin, uh, Michiganders say that they think abortion should be always or almost always legal. Only 30% say they think it should be uh, usually illegal. And who do you trust more? Um, there, by six points, not overwhelming, but by six points, Michiganders trust Joe Biden on abortion more than Donald Trump. Mm. But given the economic centrality, given that voters tell us that the economy is more important to me, that they trust um, Trump more than Biden, uh, and they think that the current economy is in really terrible shape, those point to um, Trump having this five-point lead right now in Michigan as opposed to trailing by uh, one or two points as he did in uh, 2020. Yeah, and I think that that only goes to further the notion that people do really vote on issues in a lot of cases as opposed to in particular candidates for, for these parties. Uh, Dr. Don Levy at Siena College Research Institute, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Hopefully we'll talk again soon. I hope it's a pleasure being with you. Thanks. Got to take a break. More next on JR Afternoon. Was not the night that Michigan State basketball wanted. 
Wasn't the night. But I think if we know anything about Tom Izzo is he knows how to craft a team from the ground up. He knows how to pull the best of leadership qualities from his players. And, and look, it, it Michigan State loses their 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 home opener, their opener for the season. But Steve Courtney joins us. I don't think that's in, in, uh, an indictment on where the season is going. Tom Izzo is a master negotiator, uh, 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 navigator of the, these types of issues, and he's going to get this stuff right. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Chris, uh, good afternoon to you. Hello again, everyone. This conversation brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your windows, roofing, and siding quote today. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Interesting sidebar there, Chris. Uh, yesterday morning on JR Morning in our conversation with Magnum T.I., he said he was concerned about the Dukes of James Madison, very highly regarded out of the Sun Belt Conference. And, well, we know now he had every right to be. 79-76, the Dukes get themselves the overtime win. It was Raekwon Horton uh, hitting that shot uh, with uh, like 8.6 seconds left in that overtime session to put them over the top. The Spartans truly uh, only have themselves to blame. Uh, They shot 36.1% overall. And how about this? They were 1 for 20. Let me say that again. They were 1 for 20. Uh, Mathematically, for those of you that pay attention to such stuff, uh, that's 5% from beyond the arc. How about the charity stripe? 23 of 37. That is a 62.2% clip. Uh, Tom Izzo certainly not happy with that, but in true Izzo fashion, Here's the quote. Give them a lot of credit. They played better than us. They played harder than us. And I think, uh, Chris, at the end of the day, uh, what is probably the most alarming to uh, Tom Izzo, because if you're going to be a Spartan on the hard floor, you got to hit the glass. Uh, Michigan State out-rebounded 51-48. to 48. Mm. Now, uh, the shining star, if you will, was Tyson Walker. 35 points on the night. But that being said, he, and this is so uncharacteristic, he was 0 for 5 from beyond the arc. But my point is this. You had Tyson Walker doing what he was doing. Malik Hall, 4 points. Matty Sissoko, 4 points. Jaden Akins, 4 points. A.J. Hogard had been cramping up throughout the night. Uh, he had 9 points. Uh, so of the starting 5, you had 1. 1 Spartan, the 4th ranked team in the nation in double figures. Wow. Wow. Well, look, I, I, again, Tom Izzo has a very, very talented basketball team. Very talented basketball team. I have no doubt that this is going to be a galvanizing factor for that team. I, I just, I, I refuse to believe otherwise. And, and if there is somebody that can take, a, you know, a, a, a bit of a stinker, right, like this and use it as, as fuel, it's Tom Izzo. So I, I, I'm I'm supremely not worried about Michigan State basketball. Well, listen, thank goodness there's four-plus months left uh, yeah. in this <laughs> college basketball season. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a little fodder here. Uh, it was back in uh, 1999, I believe, 
uh, Wright State went in and knocked off then number oh, six sure. Michigan State. Uh, that was the year the Spartans would go on to win a national championship. So, uh, but I'll tell you this. Uh, They've got to find a way to get off to better starts. You remember in that exhibition game against Tennessee, uh, the Spartans were down 17-1. to uh, Then against James Madison last night, they were down 20-7. to mm-hmm. Can't have it. You can only get out of so many holes, that's for sure. No doubt. Uh, also, Ken Brown joins us. Um, Hello. Wasn't so- that a Connor Stallion in a James Madison uniform I saw on the sideline last night? Maybe it was. <laughs> I just want to know. I'm just Could I heard, be. I heard. Unconfirmed reports. Unconfirmed. So far. WGR has not verified. We have not verified yeah. that here. Um, so th- th- there is an, another twist to this story that uh, the Big Ten has notified Michigan of their investigation and uh, a punishment could be coming in some fashion, whether it's a suspension, whether it's a, a blackout of games that Michigan will be playing, in which uh, that's not going to happen. Um and now Michigan has at least, I think, another, what, 24 hours here to respond to this. Steve, you have any thoughts on, on the latest here? It's just getting a bit mind-numbing right now, isn't it? I mean, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm basically to the point. Uh, we've got the NCAA involved. Uh, we've got this involved. The Big Ten is certainly doing their due diligence. I'm just to the point right now. You know, you've deciphered uh, all the evidence that we've all been privy to. Uh, whether it be technological or, you know, what have you. Um, you know, let's just come out with a ruling. But, you know, Michigan's already advised him, Chris, that if you're going to hand out a suspension to Jim Harbaugh, you know what, be prepared for a lawsuit in return. And what you're mm-hmm. talking about was the Big Ten yesterday coming through with the formal notice to Michigan Athletics notifying of the potential disciplinary action. This is all a part of the Big Ten bylaws. Sure. So, uh, you know, there's... There's a protocol that is being followed. And I think off the video calls with the coaches and athletic directors last week, I think Tony Petiti, Big Ten commissioner, who, again, has only been in office since April, um, is feeling a little bit of the heat right now um, because I think the uh, the coaches were very adamant that this is unacceptable. Um, it's unprecedented. Uh, just to throw out a couple of the uh, words they were using. Well, and now we get word that there was a, a uh, an AP article that was posted right. that said that there were other teams right. in the Big Ten that were scouting Michigan that had their signs right. and were circulating it around. Let me read this to now, you from John U. Bacon. Okay, now you got U. Bacon's. A W F W I W. I guess for, for what it's worth. Big Ten Tony Petiti was informed today that the two programs was fed Purdue Michigan signals before the 222 Big Ten title game were Rutgers and Ohio State. Not clear if rules were broken. Doesn't affect the U of M situation, but raises question relative competitive advantage. So here's the 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 thing <laughs> is I'm with Johnny Bacon. I don't know what rules were broken here. But, or if there were any rules broken at all, but the reality is, is this is rampant in college athletics, college football in particular, is there are, teams are always trying to gain an advantage and sign stealing is, is pretty normal. To the lengths you go to is the question. Uh, and that's what the Big, Big Ten is going to have to figure out. And if they're going to take this report seriously and if another investigation will be done. But but this is Why does Ohio State's name keep coming up in this all the time? Well, I, and Rutgers, which Shiana was at Ohio Shiana State. Shiana was at Ohio there, State. Why, yeah. is, why, is, why does Ohio State's name keep coming up? I don't know. I don't know. 
but that's that's the word. And you you heard lays from John Eubank. We'll continue to follow it, Stevie. Appreciate you. All right, you fellas have a great day. Huh? All right, we'll talk again soon. What do you guys got coming up today? Real quick. You, KB. Well, I got um, Dan Wessel. We're going to talk about the situation. Oh, we got him later on. We're going to talk also. We have uh, some other things. I don't have my rundown. Okay, here good. Now. We're going to uh, talk Mitch, about Mitch Jerusalem. Album coming yes, up next. See ya. Have a good one.